This morning we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. As Paul continues to describe for us the nature of the church. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, Lord, we are so thankful for your word. We are thankful for your spirit who applies the word to our lives. And we ask this morning, Lord, that your word would take deep root in our hearts. That it would change us. That it would make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. Paul has been telling us now for some time about the nature of the church, the people of God. And he has been stressing, especially at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, the unity of the people of God. And perhaps it has crossed your mind a question that I think Paul anticipates between verse 6 and verse 7. And that is... Why are we all so different if unity is the goal? I mean, after all, if we are to be united, shouldn't we all look alike, talk alike, wear the same clothes, like the same food, like the same hobbies, 
have the same abilities and skills. If we're going to be united, isn't that the way to do it? It's a question that I think is behind the scenes as Paul turns from describing the unity of the church to describing the diversity of the church within that unity. How we are very different. And it's not just that that is a good thing. That is a God-given thing. That we are intentionally different because we are given different gifts by our King, Jesus. And so this morning I would like us to see three things from this text in Ephesians chapter 4. First, we will look at the giver of the gifts. That is, our Lord Jesus. Second, we will look at the gifts that He gives to His church. And then third, we will look at the goal for which the gifts are given by Jesus. The giver, the gifts, and the goals. Let's begin then by looking at the giver of the gifts, that is, Jesus himself. And the very first thing that we understand about Jesus is that he is the dispenser not only of gifts, but of grace. That the gifts are given to us, Paul says, according to the measure of grace. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, remember the outline of the letter that we have been looking at. Remember that first, God acts. And then we act. We are not the initiators. It is God in His grace who is. Remember last week we looked at our calling to walk the Christian walk. That we are to live in accordance with our profession. That we are to live lives following the Lord. But we can only do that because the Lord has called us first to that calling. He comes into our lives first. He changes us and then we are able to walk in accordance with the change. And this reminds us of where our strength comes from. It reminds us that in all that we do, it is Jesus who gets the glory. This is critical as we think about the gifts now with Paul. Because these gifts are the way in which the church operates. It is the way things get done. It is the way ministry is performed. It allows fellow believers to have skills and abilities to accomplish the will of God. But notice again where Paul begins in verse 7. He says, But grace was given. Now, we might have expected it to be the other way around. But gifts were given. Oh, and by the way, there's grace too. Because you see, If we're honest with ourselves, we need this caution. We tend to judge ourselves and others too often by gifts rather than graces. We think gifts are primary and come first, and graces follow in their train. And Paul tells us it's the exact opposite. Oftentimes, we are tempted to judge ourselves and each other by our gifts. We see someone has skill at administration, or hospitality, or evangelism, and we judge their spiritual state by how gifted they are. 
the reality is, is that Paul points us first to the grace that grounds us, each and every one of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, each and every believer who trusts in Jesus and His work alone to find the forgiveness of sins. We are completely dependent upon God for grace. And that makes us completely dependent upon God for gifts. Paul wants us to know and understand that it is grace that is critical. It is the relationship that is primary and the gifts follow along. Think about this as an illustration in your own family. We have within our families various gifts. There are men who are handy. There are ladies who are wonderful cooks. There are children who get their homework done on time and ace all the tests. There are athletes in our midst. Now I ask you this. Is that how your relationship is founded? Wives, do you say to your husband, well, I'm, I'm glad you're handy. If you couldn't do work around the house, you'd have to hit the bricks. And he might respond, well, that's okay, because if you weren't a really good cook, I'm not sure I'd keep you around either. Right? If your child has a bad t-ball game, does he have to go sleep out in the yard? No. What binds the family together is the relationship. And then any of the skills or gifts that we have make us proud, encourage us. But that's not what keeps us together as a family, is it? It's something that we are blessed with within the context of the family. That's what Paul is saying here. That the family of the people of God are brought together by the relationship that they have with the Lord through the work of Jesus. And the gifts that we have are, if I could put it this way, gravy on top. They are things that we could be encouraged by. That we can know that the Lord is at work in our midst. But they are not the primary way that we are bound together. Something else to think here about the gifts that are given. Do you notice who Paul says received the gifts? Look at verse 7. Grace was given in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift to whom? To each one. Do you know what that means? That means that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you trust Him by faith, if you have given up trying to make it on your own, and if you have gone to the foot of the cross, then you have a gift. You may not know what it is yet. You may not have honed it yet under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. But there is no Christian who sits on the sideline. There are no riders in the church. Everyone is to be active because everyone has a gift. No matter how old or how young, how big or how small. We each have a gift. Not because the pastor wants that to be the case. Not because we want everyone to feel good about themselves. But because Paul says that Jesus does that. And if you say, I don't have any gifts. I'm not sure what I can do. I'm just going to sit on the side. Then what you're saying under your breath is that Jesus is a liar. Now that doesn't sound good to your ears, does it? I hope not, and I hope what that does is to make you think, I must have a gift. I need to find out what my gift is, because I know the giver. Gifts are given to each one. We are all important in Jesus' eyes. There are no second-class Christians. 
And this allows us to have diversity within unity. Paul has been stressing unity, but we have to remember that unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all are exactly the same. Now, there is a good deal of diversity here in Christ Church in Katy, Texas, because there is a good bit of diversity in Houston, Texas. I can look out amongst you, and I know that you come from different countries, from different backgrounds, from different races, from different economic realities. But that's not the important thing about us that's diverse. That's circumstance. What's important about us being diverse is that the Lord has given us diverse gifts. He has given us different gifts according to His measure, exactly in the way that He wishes to give them for His purpose. You see, the gifts that we have are not to make us glorified. The gifts that we have are not so that we can feel important. The gifts that we have are according to Jesus' purpose for His church. And so again, you may say to yourself, I wish I had a gift like He did. Oh, I wish I had her gift. I wish I had gifts like my friend in Florida or Arizona or Massachusetts or New York. And you know what the answer to that is? Jesus has given you exactly the gift that He needs you to have where you are right now. And that means Jesus will use you. It comes down to a basic biblical principle. Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. It's His church. They're His gifts. He's the giver and He gives them according to the measure of His grace. Well, where do our gifts come from then? Well, Paul tells us they come from Jesus. And this is an important reminder because many of us want to believe that we have the gifts that we have because we're special. Because it's something about us. Or because we're extremely hard workers. The temptation with gifts is for us to look inward. But the Bible tells us otherwise. And Paul uses a quotation from the Old Testament to make it very clear that the gifts that we have come from Jesus. Because Jesus has first obtained them. Look at verse 8. Therefore it says, Paul says, and if you don't have a footnote I'll provide it. Therefore it says in Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now there's something interesting about this quotation. If you have the ability, you could stick your finger here in Ephesians 4 and page back to the middle of your Bibles to the book of Psalms. And Paul is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. And this is the quote. You ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train, so good so far, right? And receiving gifts among men. Wait a minute. Did Paul go to sleep? Does Paul need an editor? Paul says giving gifts. The psalmist says receiving gifts. What's going on here? Is Paul making up his own Bible? Is Paul saying it's not really important to quote Scripture? I could do what I want. I don't think so. 
I think Paul wants us to really understand that we receive gifts because Jesus has first obtained them for us. Because you see, we have to understand how ancient warfare was conducted in order to understand this verse. This verse is describing the victory train, the victory party, after the king has defeated his enemies. And what would happen in the ancient world is the king would defeat the enemy, and then he would gather up all of the spoil, the gold, the silver, the cattle, the sheep. He would gather it all up from his enemy. But then do you know what the king would do? He would distribute the gifts to his people. You see, he would be given the gifts, but then he would give. That's exactly what would happen in the ancient world. And that's the picture that Paul wants you to have in your mind as Jesus is ascending, as he is going up to glory, knowing that he has won the war, he has won the victory, and he has obtained all of the gifts that he then shares with us. And this is not something that is easily done by Jesus. You see, the gifts that we have were purchased by Jesus at the cost of his own pain and suffering and life. Paul reminds us of this. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he descended? So he reminds us, if we're going to talk about Jesus ascending, we have to remember that he descended first. That he came to earth. That he became man that he lived a perfect life among sinful people, that he died a shameful death on the cross, that he went down and won the victory and was released from the grave because death could not hold him. You see, Jesus has obtained these gifts for us by his own work and the purchase by his blood. This gives us a sense of importance as we then exercise our gifts in the church. This is, again, not something optional. It's not something flippant. It's not something cheap. It's dearly bought. You know what this is like. Have you ever purchased something that was bought on the clearance rack? Maybe you got a set of colored pencils that were in the Walmart clearance rack. They were on sale for a quarter. And you're using them and they they break and they crack. Well, you don't care that much. They were only a quarter, right? But what do you understand and think about your diamond ring? Or about your brand new car? Or your brand new refrigerator? Something that you had to work long and hard for to purchase. Something that has value. You see, then we understand that it has to be used properly that it has to be taken care of. That is what this tells us about our gifts, that Jesus has purchased them for us, and we had better use them and use them well because they were purchased at great cost. What are these gifts then? Well, there are several places in the Bible where our gifts are described. If you have time later today, you can peruse 1 Corinthians 12. There is a long list of gifts, actually two lists. If you go to Romans chapter 12, there is another listing of varying gifts of all sorts. 
In 1 Peter 4, there is a shorter list of gifts. At the end of the day, all of these lists brought together are 19 or 20 gifts. But the interesting thing is that each one of these passages gives a list of gifts, but they're not the same. They have different lists, they have different nuances, different meanings. They're not absolute. So it is not as if the only gifts that could possibly be used in the church have to be found in these four passages. And that's, I think, why Paul is giving us a more general instruction. He is writing now about higher level gifts. Now, I don't mean higher level in the sense that they're more critical. I mean higher in the sense that they are foundational. That is, all of the other gifts that are described in the scripture, all of the other gifts that we exercise in the church, depend upon these two categories of gifts with four subcategories. They are used to encourage and train and build up the church to exercise all of the other gifts. And we have two broad categories. Foundational gifts and continuing gifts. And these are broken down into four subcategories. That is, apostles and prophets and, excuse me, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. And we understand this because of the nature of the Greek sentence. Now, I'm not going to teach you Greek this morning but I'll give you a way to understand what this looks like. There is a small little Greek word, so small they call it a particle. And it acts like a plus sign. Guess how many plus signs there are? There's four. Apostles, plus prophets, plus evangelists, plus pastors, teachers. We'll look at that in a moment. But Paul lays down here four subcategories within two broad categories. And the first broad category is the foundational gifts. He begins with gifts that are given to the church as it is beginning. And these are absolutely necessary for everything that follows. Without these gifts, we would not have everything that follows in the church. And the first gift that he refers to are the apostles. Now the apostles are specific men who were commissioned by Jesus to build the church. Paul actually describes it this way up just a couple of chapters in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He talks about the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And over and over again in the scriptures, we are told that there are 12 apostles. Now, I know that you can turn on the television and click through the channels or open the newspaper and find Apostle this and Apostle that and Mr. Apostle and Mrs. Apostle everywhere you look. Well, I hate to tell you, they're not apostles. Because the definition of being an apostle means that you have been with and are an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Sorry. I can't be an apostle. I didn't walk on water with Peter. I wasn't on the road to Damascus with Paul. I wasn't at the tax collector's table with Matthew. 
The apostles are the foundation of the church. They are the ones that Jesus builds the church upon. And we have biblical accounts of the apostles. We have biblical accounts of Paul and Peter and John. There are 12 of them. Now, not all of the 12 disciples were apostles, right? Because one of the disciples was the betrayer, was Judas. Well, how do we get then from 11 to 12? Well, Paul tells us himself that he was as if one born out of time. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ because he is an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And Paul is at great pains over and over again in all of his letters to declare that he is an apostle because Jesus made him an apostle. Not because he wanted to be an apostle. Not because he thought he had apostolic gifts, but because Jesus had chosen him to lay the foundation of the church. There are others as well that we don't read of in the scriptures. The Ethiopian church was founded by the apostle Matthew. The Armenian church was founded by the apostle Nathaniel. The Persian church was founded by the Apostle Thomas. And you see, all of these men were used to lay the foundation of the church. And you can see how they're foundational. If you're not sure, all you have to do this afternoon is go through the book of Acts and see how they planted churches and built up the people of God. All you have to do is go to the index of your Bible and see that we have God's Word because Matthew and Paul and Peter... And James wrote the scriptures. Jesus used the apostles to lay the foundation of the church. The second foundational gift that Jesus describes are the prophets. Now, a prophet refers to someone who is in the counsel of God and who sees and hears his word and who speaks it to his people. The phrase that comes on over and over again in the scripture from the prophet is, Thus says the Lord. When the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, it's not optional. It's not time contingent. It is God himself speaking to his people. So the main way that we think about the prophets are those in the Old Testament, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos. Ezekiel. But there are more prophets than just authors of prophetic books. Interestingly enough, do you know who is described as the greatest prophet in all of the Bible? It's Moses. There is no prophet like unto him until our Lord Jesus Christ comes. And there's no prophecy of Moses. But what does Moses do? He writes God's word for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we have God's word before us. So you see the apostles and the prophets laying that foundation and that foundation is God's word. Now, we have to understand that these gifts no longer exist. Not because they're not important, but because Jesus has given us all of his word. I don't have to wonder how I should treat my wife just in case somebody digs up 3 Thessalonians. I don't have to be concerned how I should act in my job and in my neighborhood because they might find Romans part 2 somewhere. No, I have everything I need in God's word. 
Jesus has given to us all that we need in order to live lives of godliness and in order to know Jesus by faith. And so you see here, this is why the Bible is important. The Bible is not important because of itself. The Bible is not important because it's a mystical, magical book. The Bible is important because Jesus speaks in it. That is why the scripture is important. The authority of the apostles, the authority of the prophets exists today in the scriptures. But there are also continuing gifts to the church. Because Jesus has promised that he would not abandon us. Jesus does not let us wander off into a land of confusion. No, he gives us more gifts that after the word has been laid down, that the word can be applied to our lives. Now, in the main, the word of God has two purposes. The first is to convert sinners. For example, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He sees the passage from Isaiah and he is struck to the heart and he believes on Jesus. The second is to build up the followers of Jesus, the saints. Paul puts it this way in Acts chapter 20. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the word of God is to give us birth in Christ and is to build us up in Christ. And it won't surprise you then that there are two continuing gifts to the church after these main purposes. The first, Paul says, are evangelists. Now there are always need for evangelists, right? Because the church is always growing. God is constantly giving birth to new saints from death to life. And so we need to have someone to be involved in that process. One commentator puts it this way, and I think it's a wonderful picture. He says, evangelists are the obstetricians of the church. Now, that makes perfect sense, because they assist in the birthing of new life. Now, those of you that have been involved with the having of children know that an obstetrician is important. But he or she is not the hardest working person in the room. Right? The obstetrician is basically there to make sure nothing goes wrong and to make sure that things happen the way they're supposed to. The hard work is done by the mom. But even beyond that, even the mom didn't create life. It's God who created life. All that the obstetrician does is help and assist in the production of life. And that's what an evangelist does. We actually have a misnomer when we speak of people converting other people. It's not true. We can be involved in witnessing to others... We could be an instrument that the Lord uses to bring people to saving faith, but we don't convert people. Now, this is important because it tempers our expectations. Because if we think we are the ones who convert others, we have to do it right, we have to get these gifts, then we will drive ourselves crazy wondering why people we talk to don't come to know Jesus. Are we messing it up? 
Are we doing it wrong? When in reality, it is all about God and His work. We're just there as the baby doctor. Now, not everyone is good at evangelism. Now, evangelism would be much easier, wouldn't it be, if someone in your workplace walked up to you and said, you know, I've been thinking about this John 3.16 thing for a while. What do you think it means? That'd be pretty good, right? I've been struggling with Romans 8. Could you describe for me what the Bible's talking about when it's in Romans 8? Sure I can. No, what really happens in life is people's lives are messy. They have problems in their marriages, in their homes, with their health, with their finances. They're worried. They're having struggles. And we are called to come alongside them and to bring the savor of the gospel before them, to show them hope in Christ. And let's be honest, that's not easy. It's painful, actually, most of the time. Because oftentimes, people will look at us like we're nuts. and say, get out of here. I don't need that. You see, there's a need for people to do the work who have this gift, but that doesn't let all of us off the hook. It's not as if, as the pastor, I can say, okay, um, you could be an evangelist, and no. You could be an evangelist, and you could be an evangelist. And everybody else, take five. No. What that means is, if you have the gift of evangelism, you are called not only to evangelize others, but you are called to train others up in evangelism. Because I've got a secret for you. If you're the best evangelist in all of the world, you can only be in one place at one time. And the world is a pretty big place. And we need people with the gospel in all different kinds of workplaces and neighborhoods and schools and stadiums and all over the cities and the country. And so evangelists are called not only to do evangelism, but also to train, to instruct, to lead by example. Let me ask you this morning, let me challenge you. Do you think you might be gifted in this way? Are you able to memorize passages of Scripture? Are you able to have easy conversations with people, not just about the Bible, but about all sorts of things that you might be able to enter into their life and their circumstances? This gift is a continuing gift. And it's an important gift to the church. Then there is this fourth category that Paul says, our pastor teachers. Now, you'll notice that the, our translation, the ESV, gives you a hint that this is the fourth category and not the fourth and fifth. It didn't tell you about the Greek plus sign. That doesn't go off well in scholarly circles when you talk about Greek plus signs. I should have bored you with a lot more Greek grammar, but I won't. But do you notice what Paul does in this list? It is the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. You see, they go together. You could have even translated this with a hyphen, pastor teachers. And this means not that all pastors and teachers are identical, but what it does mean, I think, foremost, is that all pastors are teachers. They must be teachers. Not every teacher is called to be a pastor, but all pastors are pastor teachers. Because they are the ones who feed the flock of God. They are the ones who grow up believers in the Lord. And this we get even from the Word. You see, we think 
Pastor just applies to a man standing up in the front talking for a while. And we wonder, I think, sometimes if we're in an art gallery and they talk about a pastoral scene where the pulpit is. There's just a stream and and trees and flowers and animals. You see, the word pastor comes both in the Hebrew and in the Greek from a word that means pastor, a person who takes care of sheep. And do you know what a shepherd does? He feeds sheep. He protects sheep. He takes them where they're supposed to go. He lives his life out for their benefit. And that's what pastors are called to do. A pastor is called to be a shepherd to feed the people of God. Jesus understood this. Do you remember at the most important moment of Peter's life? Now remember, Peter is the chief among all the disciples. Peter is the one who professed Jesus as the Christ. Peter is the one who walked on water. Do you remember at the most important moment of his life what Jesus told him he was to do? Not once. Not twice. But three times. Feed my sheep. In John chapter 21. Jesus has said that for the pastor, the most important thing is to feed my sheep. That's why it's a continuing gift. The apostles and the prophets have laid the foundation of Scripture and God's Word. The evangelists have helped the birthing process of bringing someone into the reality of understanding God's Word. And then the pastor gets them to live and breathe God's Word that they might grow in the faith. You see, we need discipling, all of us. We're not where we should expect to stay. We're called to grow, Paul says in verse 13, in our faith. To grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need pastor teachers to disciple us in that way. The third thing we see from this text this morning, after the giver and the gifts is the goal for which Jesus gives gifts. We might ask ourselves, why does Jesus give us these gifts? Perhaps you might even have wondered to yourself, why doesn't Jesus just make us perfect on conversion? Wouldn't that be great? The moment you believe in Jesus, you'll never lie again. You'll never get angry with anyone again. All your relationships will be perfect. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Jesus instead insists that we grow in Christ. Now, why does he do this? He lays the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in God's word. And he has evangelists and pastor teachers to allow us to grow in God's word. And have you ever asked yourself, why does Jesus give authority to the Bible? a book that is several thousand years old, in a world that is constantly changing every week? And the answer is found in verse 12. It is for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, Jesus has a goal for us. Look at verse 13. He says, we are going to be built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. Jesus is not finished with you until He is. You may think you've lived a long time. You've been in church a lot of Sundays. You've done all that you need to do. But Jesus is not finished with you yet. And do you know how I know that for certain? You're here and you're breathing. Because when Jesus is finished with you, it will be until, it will be at that point when you are perfect. When you come to the measure of Jesus, when you are with Him in glory, that is when Jesus is finished. But until then, the goal of the gifts that Jesus gives to the church is to build up the church. Notice who it is to build up. Who is to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? The elders? The deacons? The Sunday school teachers? Now what does Paul say? All. Until each and every one of us is who Jesus would have us to be. You see, Jesus wants us to be united in the faith. We've been talking a lot about unity and diversity. And we might ask ourselves that in the midst of all this diversity, how do we stay together and not just all go off in different directions? The reason is that our unity is found in the faith. The faith that is once delivered to the saints. You see, there's a connection between these gifts and the goal that Jesus has. The connection is that grounded in the Word of God. We find our unity in what we know about Jesus. And what Jesus also wants us to be is to be mature, to be grown. Now, we have to understand what it means to be a mature Christian. To be a mature Christian does not mean to be more able than others. That's kind of what we see in life, right? We have children and they're not able to do too many tasks, but as they get older, they're able to do and attain to more things. We have our children who grow up and they go off to college and they learn how to adult. You know what I mean. They can balance a checkbook. They know how to get an oil changed in the car. They know how to pay bills on time. They know how to balance a budget, right? But that's not the kind of maturity that Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about a maturity that comes because we are more capable in the church. What he's saying is, you are more mature the more you are like Jesus. So if you want to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ, it is much less an action and more a character within you. It is not what you do. It is about your character. And when we are equipped in this way, we are equipped to face the battles that the church will have. It can be discouraging for us, can't it, to live in 2016 in the church? We wonder why so many people are hostile to the church. Why there's so much false doctrine around. Why nobody seems to believe the Bible. We wonder why we are placed in this time and place. But the truth is, the church has always had those attacks from within and from without. And Jesus has given us gifts to prepare us for those attacks. Do you see what Paul says? These gifts are given to us, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. 
Jesus gives you the Bible and he gives you the apostles and the prophets and he gives you evangelists and teachers so that you might know God's word and stake your life upon it, surely. Because Jesus knows the enemy wants us to be separated from him. Think about the way a battle is fought. There's smoke that's thrown out on the battlefield. There's noises that are used for distraction. You want the enemy to be confused and to wander away from where they are safe. And the enemy of our soul is also deliberate in his attacks. When Paul uses the word cunning here, I want you to think of the word cheating. Because that's what it is. Satan tries to cheat you out of your relationship with Jesus. This word here, craftiness, has in its meaning villainy or a bad motive. Satan is doing this intentionally to try to hurt the church. He is using schemes, that is, deliberate actions to try to break up the church. But the gifts of Jesus Christ protect us and give us hope. Lastly, we see the goal of these gifts is ministry by the body. It's to accomplish the work of the church. And both the foundational and the continuing gifts are for this. Look with me here at verse 12. These gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The idea here is that all believers are to be equipped. They are to be trained to make them adequate to do the work of the ministry. No one is able to shirk their responsibility. No one is unable to work in the church of Jesus Christ. All of this training is to do the work of the ministry. If everyone is called by Christ, then it makes sense that everyone has a gift. And if everyone has a gift, then Jesus equips all of us to do his work. Think about the multiplying factor that this has in the life of a church. If only the pastors or the elders or the officers did the work of ministry, think of how many places during the week ministry would not be done. Think of how many people would not hear about Jesus, would not be encouraged from God's word. You see, the goal of the gifts that Jesus gives is to equip the saints to do the work that Jesus has given to you. This ministry is a ministry of word and of life. Paul puts it this way in verse 15. He says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to build each other up. Now, there's a little bit of liberty taken with the translation here. It's a good translation. But the word here, speaking the truth in love, isn't what we would think it to be in English. We would think speaking is the verb, truth is the object, And love is the adverb or an adverbial phrase. It's actually only one word. It's a verb, truthing. It means to speak the truth, but to be the truth, to prove true. You see, Jesus is calling upon you to minister to those who are around you, not just by what you say, but by how you live also. To be true in a land of falsehood. In this way we grow more and more and the body is better and better equipped to do the task that Jesus has given to it. And all of this brings glory to Jesus.
You see, Jesus has given gifts to those that He has graced. That His people might accomplish the work that He has given. And we have to remember that we are called to more than just our own salvation. We are called to see the transformation of all of creation by Jesus. This is what He equips us for. To be the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning that you have reminded us of your goodness and grace to us in Christ. How we are equipped, how we are sustained by the gifts of Jesus, by the foundation of your word. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make us a people eager to do your will. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen.